Good morning, church family. It's so good to have you here this morning. If you are a visitor, a guest with us this morning, we ask that you fill out the Connect card that's found in your worship guide. Tear it out, and at the end of the service, you'll have an opportunity to meet our pastor, Stuart Holloway, in the um, foyer out here, and he will have a gift for you, a copy of his book, The Privilege of Worship. And what a privilege it is to be here in the house of the Lord today. And if you hear these precious little baby noises and talking up here this morning, that's awesome to hear because that's signs of growth and new life. And we have the privilege this morning to dedicate our children. And I'm going to pray for us first. And as we're doing that, if y'all will just come forward and we'll um, proceed with it in just a moment. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house to worship today, Father. What a glorious day it is to be able to come worship you and to dedicate these babies and families to you this morning, Father God. God, I'm thankful that that represents new life and growth not only in families, but here at our church too, Father God, and I'm so grateful for that, Father. Lord, may you inhabit our praises this morning as we sing songs of worship to you. May you speak through Stuart as he brings the message that you have for us this morning, God. May we be obedient to whatever it is that you speak to us this morning, Lord God. May we say yes to whatever challenge or task that you may put before us. And may we be a vessel used for you wherever we go this week, Father. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, today, February 10th, 2019, marks a very important day in the lives of these children and their families. It also marks um, an important day in the life of our church as we partner together to raise these children in the ways of the Lord. As a church, we are committing today to pray for these parents as they lead their children spiritually. We also are asking you, the congregation, to partner with these parents by teaching their children at church and modeling a Christ-like lifestyle. We desire for our parents and children to have the church come alongside of them as they raise these young ladies to walk in the ways of the Lord. Today, we dedicate to the Lord these three precious children. And I'm going to call Stuart up here so he can present their gifts to them this morning. Um, if you're a grandparent or a great-grandparent, when I, when I call your name, just stand where you are so we can recognize you too this morning. So first, this morning, we dedicate Taylor Kate Landry. She was born November 15th, 2018. Her parents are Jonathan and Jessica Landry. She has two big brothers that are very proud of her, Tucker and Tarver. Her grandparents are Tucker and Lee Ann Peavy and Reverend Norris and Donna Landry. Her great-grandparents are Francis Holtzlander and Billy and Virginia Peavy. And they have chosen as Taylor's life first, Jeremiah 1, 5. And it says, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah 1, 5. Ms. Taylor Kate Landry. Next, 
we dedicate Miss Isabel Iris Smith, and they call her Belle. She was born on May 12, 2018. Her parents are Chad and Megan Smith, and she has a proud big sister, Miss Dakota. Her grandparents are Frank and Renee Melder. Great grandparents, I'm sorry, and Bobby and Reva Smith, and then great grandparents, Jerry and Sandra Ushry. They have chosen Romans 12, too, as her life first. And it says, do not conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12, 2, Miss Belle Smith. And next, we dedicate Rosalie Duarte Yancey, and she goes by Rosie. She was born July 16th of 2017. Her parents are Reginald Yancey II and Amanda Yancey. She has several older siblings that are very proud of her, Jesse Wood, Jennifer Wood, Joanna Wood, and Reginald Dean Yancey III. Her grandparents are Reginald Yancey and Teresa Yancey, Andrea O'Dell, and then great-grandparents Nancy O'Dell. They have chosen Isaiah 30, 21 as Rosie's life verse. It says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. I'm gonna turn it over to Stuart now. Well, parents, as you learned in the class, As you learned in the class leading up to this day, one of the things that we base a parent-child dedication on is in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema of Israel, named Shema because that's the word that means here in Israel. And one of the things that it says is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. As we do this, we don't call it baby dedication here. We call it parent and child dedication. Because as you're coming today, you're committing to raising these three wonderful girls in the instruction of the Lord. And we want Deuteronomy 6 to be true of your life in your home where you permeate their lives with faith. And as a church family, we come alongside you to help you, to encourage you, and to equip you during this time. And so I want you to know that all of us as your church family are cheering you on. We're here for you for all of the trials and challenges and joys that'll be ahead and we look forward to doing life with you as we all seek to live out our church goal of being first together let's have a word of prayer and blessing these parents and these babies and lift them up to the lord lord jesus we come before you this morning and we're so grateful lord for these families that are represented here god we pray that you would bless them and guide them in the years to come as they raise these three little girls i pray god for taylor and ask you lord to uh grow her to be a woman of God who loves you with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. Keep her healthy. Keep her safe. Lord, help her to make a great difference for your kingdom. I pray, Lord, also for Belle and ask, Lord, that you would touch her life and bless her. Lord, we pray that you would use her as a mighty woman of God and do great things in her life as well. 
And we pray for Rosie. We ask God that you would just bless her and make her a joy to all who know her. And that, Lord, she would be a great woman of God who loves you with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, as the church family of Jesus Christ, we lift up these families to you. We wrap our arms of love and support to them. And we ask God that you would do exceedingly beyond what they or we could ask imagine in their lives ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Your love so great, Jesus, in all things. I've seen a glimpse of your heart a billion years. Still I'll be singing. How can I praise you enough? How can I praise you enough? You are the Lord.
Let us worship. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Let's exalt the name of the Lord together. Let's stand and sing together. Blessed assurance.
Lord, you are great, and we thank you for it. Let's bow for prayer now. Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for this great privilege and honor that you give us to just come to your house and praise you and worship you and uh, show our love for you, Lord. And I pray that we will do that today in a way that gives you great glory. And Lord, I ask that uh, you touch our hearts that we might do as Malachi did and bring in the tithes. And Lord, I believe that if we did that, you would shower us with blessings. But Lord, if we added some, uh, some above the tithe, I believe you would pour out the blessings to us. So Lord, I thank you for that privilege you give us to uh, uh, bring our tithes and offerings to you each week. So I ask in the precious holy name of Jesus, amen. Jesus be near to
so thankful that the Lord reveals himself to us. He is worthy of our praise today. Worthy is the Lamb. Would you join your hearts with ours as we lift this song together, sing together.
Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 13 as we continue our series, Jesus, Who Are You?, with a message that I've entitled, A Basin and a Towel. Chapters 13 through 17 contain Jesus' farewell messages to his disciples. And after chapter 12, there are no more public discourses. 13 through 17 are for those closest to Jesus. And in these chapters, we see intimate teaching about service and about love, the Holy Spirit, heaven, our union with Christ, and with prayer. And I want to begin this morning by reading the entire passage and then going back and walking back through it. So we'll begin reading in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. 
Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Scholars disagree whether or not this supper was the last supper in John's gospel. Some will say it's a supper that happened earlier in the week. Others will say it is the last supper. I tend to believe that this is John's account of the last supper, primarily because there is no other supper in John, and this story flows seamlessly right into the rest of the passage narrative. But it is interesting that instead of focusing on the cup and the bread, John focuses on the basin and the towel. Apparently, that was the object lesson that really captured his attention. Out of everything that happened that night in that upper room, this event was the one he wrote down in his gospel. John tells us that this Passover feast was beginning and it was a special time. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. The NIV, which I use, has that Jesus knew his time had come. Your translation may say he knew his hour had come. There are certain times and hours in our life for which we live, like lunchtime or quitting time. Some of you may still do Dr. Pepper time at 10, 2, and 4. Jesus had such an hour that he looked forward to. Unlike us, though, it wasn't an hour that he looked forward to each day and then it passed. Jesus's hour was the hour, the time that he looked forward to throughout his entire life. Jesus's hour was the climax of his existence. Jesus lived his life according to a heavenly timetable. And this hour was the reason Jesus had come to earth. And now his hour had come. This was the hour when God would glorify Jesus and Jesus would glorify God. This was the hour when Jesus would redeem the sins of the world and defeat Satan. This was the hour when he would return to the Father, reminding us that he came from the Father and that he was divine. I think you would agree this was a very important and significant hour. Still, while he knew the time was coming for him to leave, Jesus loved these guys with whom he'd spent the last three years as his disciples. In spite of all their idiosyncrasies, in spite of uh, their dim-wittedness at times, he remembered calling them to follow him. He remembered the wonder in their eyes as he said, follow me, leave everything and follow me. And they did. Each one of them had followed. 
So on this night as they were gathered together with him knowing that he was going to go to the cross for their sins and our sins, he decided to show them the full extent of his love. A better translation of that would be that he wanted to show them that he loved them to the uttermost. The original phrase means it has the idea of to the end and absolutely. That's where we get the uttermost. So Jesus wanted his guys to know that he loved them absolutely all the way to the end. The evening meal was being served, a Passover meal. It was a feast. If you've ever eaten a Passover meal, you know it's about the heaviest kind of meal you can eat and you feel terrible for three days after it. A, a Passover meal, there's this wonderful feast. And, and like any of us at Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter, the men were eager to dig in to this meal. They each had come into the room. They had reclined at the table, and they were waiting. They had waited for the food, excited, their mouths salivating at the rich aromas that wafted up into the upper room from the hearth down below. But something had not been done. The men had just come in. And reclined at the table. They had left out something. They had not done that thing their mamas had taught them to do their whole lives, which was to wash up before dinner. See, the roads in the time of Jesus were dirt. Therefore, when it was dry, they were deep with dust. When it was wet, they were deep in mud. Furthermore, there was no sewage system at the time, and so sometimes waste would even be thrown out into the streets. The disciples wore sandals if they wore any kind of shoes, and these sandals didn't have thick soles like some of ours do today. They were just basically a piece of leather, a thin piece of leather that was held onto your foot by some leather straps. So your feet got very dirty. It was customary, though, that when you were going to a banquet that you would bathe yourself before going. You got all fixed up for banquets. And certainly the disciples had done this. Certainly they had gotten all bathed and were clean. So while the men might be clean everywhere else though, their feet were filthy and they needed washing. And they normally would have been washed because normally when you went to a home, the host would have his servant wash the feet of his guest as they entered the home. But here in the upper room, there was no host because the room was borrowed. There was no servant, therefore. And so you would expect that the disciples on an occasion like this, would simply take turns washing each other's feet before the evening began. But that wasn't about to happen on this night. Because we learn from Luke's gospel that the disciples had been arguing about who was the greatest and who should have prominence and who was most important. And and there was no way any of these disciples was going to wash another's feet. And so they had come into the home, walked right past the pitcher and the basin and the towel, and had gone to the table. There's no way any one of these disciples was going to stoop down to do a job like that for someone else. Well, Jesus knew who he was. He, he knew it was time for him to go back to the Father. He knew that he was going to show them the full extent 
of his love. He knew some very important things. He knew he had the power. He knew he was God. He knew he was divine. He knew he would be the victor. He knew he was the Lord. He knew he was the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so John writes, Jesus commanded the guys, wash my feet. It's not what he says, is it? This one who had supreme power, this one who made the cosmos out of chaos, this one who is the first and the last didn't command them to wash his feet, nor did he even ask them to do it. No. He got up from the table. He left his plate. He left his food to get cold and He got up from that table just as he had risen from his place in heaven beside the Father in heaven to come to earth. He took off his outer garments just as he had laid aside his glorious existence in heaven. He went to the basin and he picked up a towel just as he took upon himself the form of a servant. He wrapped that towel around his waist for he had come to serve. He took up the pitcher and poured water in the basin just as he was about to have his blood poured out in order to wash away human sin. He carried the basin to the first disciple and God himself knelt down before common man. Jesus knelt before the disciples and he began washing their feet. God, the creator of the universe, disrobed, knelt in his underwear before the smelly feet of men and washed. When I say that God is in his underwear, I'm not saying that in a humorous way or in a disrespectful way. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's to show us that Jesus was willing to endure self-humiliation to show the full extent of his love to these guys. Only two times in Scripture... Does Jesus lay aside his outer garment? The first is here. The second is at the cross. And both of those happened within about 24 hours of each other. On this remarkable occasion, Jesus greatly staged a portrayal of his whole life from birth to crucifixion to resurrection. And it was a dramatization of Philippians chapter 2, 6 and 7. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. In the mid-1800s, the artist Ford Maddox Brown painted the masterpiece that's on the screens here. It's called Jesus Washing Peter's Feet. This is the original painting that uh, depicted Jesus only semi-clad in his undergarments, much as John describes in his gospel. Critics objected to the painting's coarseness. It was too much for them to see Jesus in only his undergarments. In fact, the painting remained unsold for several years until Brown reworked Jesus and put him in robes. You see, even art critics had a problem with the reality of this scene in the upper room. We have a hard time understanding God stooping down, God in his undergarments kneeling down to wash dirty feet. It's a striking scene, isn't it? 
Jesus shows supreme humility because he has supreme love. William Barclay reminds us that genuine love is always like that. When someone falls ill, isn't it the person who loves them or her, him or her the most that performs the most menial of tasks? Sometimes we feel we are too distinguished to do the humble things, too important to do some menial tasks, but Jesus was not like that. He knew that he was the Lord of all, and yet he washed his disciples' feet. Only those who are truly secure in themselves can kneel down to serve another. Only those who have genuine love for others can kneel down and serve others. So can you hear the water as it flows into the basin? As that water is lifted up and poured over those disciples' feet, can you hear the soft rubbing of the towel as Jesus dried those feet one by one? I'm sure the disciples did because I'm sure the room was silent. One by one, Jesus moved through the room, washing feet. First one disciple, then another, then another. Who had been low enough to do this job? Surely not I, because I'm the most important disciple. Surely not I, because I'm a wealthy man. Surely not I, because I'm the oldest. Perhaps John himself may have thought, surely not I, because I am the beloved. Surely not I, surely not I, surely not I, surely not I. Twelve times until surely I am. And the great I am knelt before those disciples and washed their feet. One by one, one filthy, crusted, calloused foot after another, 24 feet in all. The disciples watched. As one disciple's feet were being washed, the next reluctantly removed his sandals, as you can see on the left side of the painting. And he waited for the master to kneel before him was an awesome sight to behold. Jesus had the power to do anything, but he chose to serve. But then Jesus came to Peter. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Good old Peter. Everyone else was stunned. And so they just kind of went with it. But true to his character, Peter blurts out a question. And like most times when Peter sticks his foot in his mouth, we benefit from his boldness. Jesus says, Peter, you don't realize what I'm doing now, but you will. Peter pulled back his feet. No, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Peter couldn't stand the thought of Jesus, the Christ, washing his feet feet and serving him. In fact, the Greek text suggests that he could not have made a stronger protest. He uses the double negative. Your English teacher doesn't let you do that, but you could do that in Greek. And so Peter literally says something like this, not never shall you wash my feet, not never. You're not touching my feet, Jesus. Jesus replied, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, that stunned Peter. He wanted to be with Jesus, so, so he said, well, then, then uh, Lord, don't just wash my feet. Wash my head, my hands, 
my whole body as well. Give me a bath. Peter wanted to be with Jesus. But Jesus was looking beyond the incident to what it symbolized in washing their feet. Jesus was modeling servant leadership and trying to teach his disciples the importance of a holy walk. He replies in verse 10, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is already clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. What Jesus was showing us is that when a person comes to Jesus Christ as Savior, that person is bathed all over. His or her sins are washed away and forgiveness comes no matter how filthy they were. Consider 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Those of you who name the name of Christ today as believers, aren't you glad that you've been washed under the blood of the Lamb? Sins are forgiven. When a person comes to Christ in salvation, he's washed clean. But as that believer walks in the world, he becomes defiled. He gets dirty. His feet get dirty. He's tempted to sin. He gives in to sin. Every believer who has been washed of his sins in salvation sins again. And if they say they're not, they're lying, which is a sin. All of us sin. But when we sin after salvation, we don't lose our salvation. We simply need to have that sin forgiven. That defilement must be washed away so we confess our sins to him. And as John writes in 1 John 1, uh, 9, God forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He washes our feet. Warren Wiersbe explains it this way. He says, when God bathes us all over in salvation, he brings about our union with Christ. And that's a settled relationship that cannot change. In fact, the verb wash in John 13, 10 is the perfect tense, meaning it's settled once and for all. You're saved, you're washed, it's done. But our communion with Christ depends on our keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. And if we confess our sins, we, if we don't confess our sins, we hinder our walk with Christ. But if we will confess our sins, our feet are clean and we can continue to go where he goes. Such an idea has its origin in the Old Testament. When the priest was consecrated, he was bathed all over. But as that was a, an experience that was not repeated again. But during his daily ministry, that priest would become defiled. His feet would get dirty. His hands would get dirty. And so it was necessary that he would go to that bronze laver and wash his hands and wash his feet before he went into the holy place to burn incense or to trim the lamps or to eat the holy bread. So Jesus is telling Peter here, you've already been cleansed by your belief in me. You don't need to be saved again, Peter. What you need is your feet washed so you might continue in communion with me, that you might continue to walk in righteousness. And Peter gives in. Ford Baddox Brown in his painting 
portrays this so neat with Peter in that prayerful, submitted position now as Jesus washes his feet. Now Jesus makes an interesting statement in verse 11. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. You see, Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him, and Jesus also knew Judas's heart. Even though Jesus had washed Judas's feet, Jesus knew what Judas really needed was a bath. Judas had turned away from Christ. And you see, if you're still in need of a full bath, just washing your feet doesn't do any good. Judas was the one lone disciple who needed the bath of salvation. Well, when Jesus finished washing everyone's feet, he carefully carried the basin, now filled with brown water and an inch of sand, over to its place and set it down. He took off the towel that he'd wrapped around his waist and hung it where it was to hung. And he put, picked up his outer garment and he put it back on and he returned to his cold plate at the table. And then he said, do you not, do you understand what I have done for you? Guys, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also you must wash one another's feet. There's a significant shift that occurs in Jesus' language there. Notice that he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and that's right. But then he shifts the order when he says, but now that I, your Lord and teacher... The shift is important because it shows the shift that had to take place in the disciples' mind. When they first met Jesus, he was a teacher, and they learned that he was Lord. Now they know that he is Lord, and they learn from him because he is Lord. Only one who bows before the Lord can bow before someone else. Jesus challenges his disciples and us, wash one another's feet. In verse 15, he says, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What are some truths that we can take home today from this powerful picture of humility and forgiveness and service? Well, first, we learn that we must humble ourselves. We must too often we confuse humility with timidity and inferiority, but that is not what humility is at all. True humility is power under restraint. It's like a broken and bridled horse. That is true humility. Or it's like the king of kings who kneels to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus set it all aside and served. He could do that because he was secure in who he was in his relationship with the Father. And true humility grows out of our relationship with the Father. Show me a person who has no humility, and you've shown me a person who lacks a relationship with the Heavenly Father. Herschel Hobbes asks, if God can be humble, why cannot man be the same? What an example. We must humble ourselves. Second, we must have our feet washed daily. If you're already saved, you've had a bath. But you sin daily and you need your sins forgiven. The cleansing of our feet doesn't come from the physical act of washing those feet. It comes through the spiritual act of confessing our sins to God 
and then allowing the water of his word to pour in and over us every day, bringing healing to our lives. Remember that you are a recipient of God's amazing grace. Your best service to others will come when you're walking closest to God. William Barclay says, there's no, close, there's no one closer to men than the man who is close to God. We must have our feet washed daily. Third, we must serve others. The process needs to move in that order. Humility in humbling ourselves. Holiness in having our feet washed daily. And then service. When you're submitted to Jesus, you can kneel in service. Every follower of Christ must be a person of the basin and the towel. Rick Warren defines service this way. He says, it's demonstrating God's love to others and meeting their needs and healing their hurts in Jesus' name. That's what service is. So what kind of needs are around you? Who do you need to serve? Maybe it's a child in the nursery and their parents who need to be in worship during this challenging stage of life. Maybe it's a shut-in who needs a friend to talk to or someone to do a little extra thing since they can't do things on their own. Maybe it's an orphan child who needs a forever family. Maybe it's a couple that's struggling to make ends meet. Maybe it's a military family where one of the spouses is deployed. Maybe it's our first responders who need encouragement. Maybe it's a less fortunate person who needs a coat. The list could go on and on because needs are literally everywhere around us. We must ask the Holy Spirit to show us, where am I to perform this ministry? What needs can I meet in Jesus' name? We must be willing to take up the basin and take up the towel and kneel before our fellow human beings and wash their feet. We must be willing to serve when no one notices, when no one cares, and maybe even when people try to reject us. We must be willing to serve. And fourth then, if we're humble and we're holy and we're serving, Jesus says we will be blessed you notice that in verse 17? Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Some translations say you'll be happy if you do them. Blessing is the byproduct of a life that's lived in the will of God. And when we humbly serve others, when we're walking in God's path of holiness and we're doing what he tells us to do, we are happy. We are blessed. Yes. Even if you wash smelly feet. You're blessed. The disciples wanted blessing, but they wanted something for nothing. And so Jesus says, if you want a blessing, serve others. If you want a blessing, take up the towel and start washing. If you want to be blessed, be a blessing. Consider our master's example this morning. See his humility. See his service. Feel the silence in that room. Hear the water as it pours. Follow his example. Take up the basin and take up the towel and serve others. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for your example that the King of kings and the Lord of lords would humble humble himself to serve. We thank you, Lord, that you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. And we know, Lord, that everyone in this room 
was on your mind when you hung on that cross. Every one of our sins was taken upon you on that cross. And so, Lord, for those of us who are believers today and who are saved and washed by the blood of the Lamb, we give you great praise. And we are grateful. And we thank you for the daily cleansing you bring through confession. And for those in this room who have yet to trust you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today they would be washed and made whiter than snow. That they would submit themselves to your Lordship so that you might lift them up. God, speak to our hearts during this special time of invitation when we respond to your Spirit's prodding in our lives. And may we do your will for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.